let's get into today's passage in Joshua chapter 2. We've been jumping into a new series called Faithful. We've been looking at the faithfulness of God. And I think when most people think about the book of Joshua, uh, I think what comes to mind is things like wars or the conquest of land. Uh, when we think about the promised land, all right, uh, we don't really think about the story of Rahab we're going to be reading about this morning. Um, it almost seems like a side story to the main story of these wars and uh, the conquests. Uh, it, it, it feels like, kind of like uh, you know, those movies that have certain scenes in it where you watch it and you're like, oh, that scene really didn't need to be a part of the movie. There are times when Trisha and I would watch a movie and there'd be some kind of like kissing scene where like two teens are kissing and she'd tell me like, oh, that's so like unnecessary. That totally didn't, didn't even need to be in the movie. Right? And, and there are movie, movies like that where th- there seems to be a scene that doesn't really feel like need, need, needs to even be in the movie. And I think some people can think that way when it comes to the, 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 the chapter on Rahab. The chapter on Rahab. That it, it's, a, it's an account that maybe could have been left out. But what we're going to see this morning is that the, the story of Rahab, it, it not only fits with the big story of God's work in human history, but the same hope that Rahab had is the same hope that we need. So let's take a look at it in Joshua chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It reads, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies for the Achaia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So Joshua sends two spies uh, to go into Jericho. Uh, This city was in Amorite territory, and I'll I'll share a little bit more about the Amorites and and, and that people group. And and the the mission of the spies were to scout out the land. And as we go through Joshua, we're going to read and see a lot of war and uh, the Israelites taking land that the Lord had promised them. Uh, Now the kind of interesting thing is when we had planned this series out, this was months ago, uh, we planned it before the war between Hamas and Israel happened. And so I, I just kind of think it's interesting that, yeah, we had planned this series before that even started. And here we are talking about uh, Joshua and conquest and war. And as you know, right, there's a lot of criticism as, as well as a lot of support for um, Israel, right, both here nationally as well as globally. And um, I, I want to mention that right, there are different positions that, Christians take when it comes to the modern state of Israel uh, and the promises of God. So, uh, real quickly, some Christians uh, think that all the promises of God uh, to his people in the Bible still apply to national ethnic Israel today. So, in, in a sense, there are two peoples of God there's the church and there's ethnic Israel even though the majority of ethnic Israel does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Other Christians uh, would say that, no, the promises that were given to Israel in the Bible have been fulfilled in the church, in and through the church. And so uh, now the church, which is comprised of both non-Jewish, Gentiles, and Jewish people, Christians, are now the one true people of God. So, right, so we've got two different spectrums. 
But then in the middle of all that are other Christians that take some kind of middle position. Like, yeah, there are some promises that are uh, still applicable to, to ethnic Israel today, but some of them have already been fully fulfilled in the church. So um, that's just something to be aware of, uh, that, that Christians believe a wide spectrum when it comes to ethnic Israel uh, today and the plan of God and, and the promises in Scripture. And we're not going to get into all the details of that this morning. Uh, but see, in Joshua, what's important to know is that Israel, in Joshua, is God's instrument of judgment on the wicked nations living in God's land. When we read this book, um, we have to remember that Joshua is not entering a land that's filled with innocent people who are just living out their lives and are about to get their land stolen from them. These are wicked people that God has given hundreds of years to repent, like the Amorites, uh, but they, they don't. Now, we should also know that uh, the counts in Joshua, they're not a justification for taking someone else's land. We have to remember that this is a specific time in salvation history where God is teaching humanity about his mercy and about his judgment through Israel under the leadership of Joshua. So that, that's important to know. Right? This is not a roadmap of how to make war on others. The people of Jericho uh, who are about to face judgment, right? they're part of the Amorite territory. The Amorites were involved in child sacrifices. So what they would actually do to appease their gods, would they would actually burn their children alive in order to worship their gods. And that's just one example of the heinous, wicked practices of the Amorites. And these, this group of people refused God's rule, even though God gave them hundreds of years to turn from their evil ways. And now, after God's patience, he is now going to bring judgment through Joshua and Israel. So Joshua ends up sending spies into the land of Jericho. And it seems like it's something that God told him to do, even though it's not explicitly said. But the interesting thing is, right, God had already promised that, um, that Jericho would be there, that, that Joshua would have victory wherever he would go. So they didn't really need to scout out the land. They didn't need to spy in order to get a playbook on how to defeat Jericho. It's, it's not like some kind of sports team that wants to steal the other team's playbook in order to beat them. No, God had already promised Joshua victory over Jericho. So then the question would be, so why would the spies then be sent to Jericho? It wasn't in order to gain the victory in battle. The reason seems to be to save sinners from judgment, in particular Rahab and her family. It was so that the spies would find Rahab, a prostitute, and, and it wasn't by chance, or it wasn't, it wasn't by coincidence that the spies ended up meeting her, but it was something that was divinely orchestrated by God to show mercy to an Amorite, a non-Jewish person, and her family. Let's read on in verse 2. It reads, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. For they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate, a city gate was about to close, the men went out. And I don't know where they were going. Chase them quickly. And you can catch up with them. But then verse 6, 
But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. Okay, so Joshua sends these spies, and I don't think he sent his 007 top agent spies. And the reason why is because they were already found out. Right, they were probably newbies to the game because the city already knows that, okay, there are spies here. The king of Jericho finds out that, the, that they actually went to Rahab's house. So they didn't do a very good job being, um, being secretive in their mission. Something must have gave them away. Maybe their accent. Maybe they're still wearing their, their slave clothes from uh, being slaves in Egypt. Uh, maybe it was their haircut. We don't know. But somehow they were found out. And uh, not only that, but right, the king of Jericho knew that they went to Rahab's house. And Rahab wants to hide them. And she actually right, lies in order to protect them so they wouldn't get caught. Let's look at some of the lies she says. So she says, right, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. Well, we know that's a lie, right? At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out. Well, we know that's not true. They didn't go out. And I don't know where they're going. She knows where they are right there. She says, chase after them quickly, and you can catch the, up with them. They wouldn't because they're upstairs, right? Uh, so Rahab's pretty good at lying because she ends up convincing the soldiers uh, to listen to her and to leave her house. Now, something to, to, to note is that some Christians will actually take this example of Rahab and use it as a justification to lie if there is some kind of greater good that's accomplished. They think that, that uh, because of a greater good that can be accomplished, it is, it is okay, it is right in God's eyes to tell a lie if it means, for example, you're protecting his spies. The ends justifies the means. But I don't think, right, God, he doesn't need us to break his commandment of bearing false witness or testimony uh, in order to, to help him out. Right? God's not worried about the king of Jericho. God's not sitting up in heaven thinking, oh my gosh, if Rahab doesn't lie, then my spies are going to get caught and my whole plan is going to be ruined. Right? God's not worried about that. God is sovereign. He's already promised Joshua victory. He doesn't need our, our help and even manipulation in order to accomplish his purposes. We can trust him. But Rahab lies, and so she, she's still dealing with, with sin in her life, just like all of us. But yet, right, in, in the midst of her still dealing with her sin, what we see is a faith in God shining through her life. It's not a perfect faith, but it's a beautiful one. And she shows that and proves it by hiding the spies. In, in, in verse 6, right, it says she's taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. So Rahab, she chooses to hide the spies, and she probably could have been executed, put to death, because that would be treason, because these spies were, were, were there to overthrow the city. But yet she trusted God the God of Israel. She believed that it was worth it. She probably could have gotten some kind of reward for turning in the spies, but she didn't do that. And we see her faith in God in her response in verse 8. Look at what she says. It says, Before the men fell asleep, 
she went up the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to uh, Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brother, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. So so we actually get a, a, a picture into what Rahab is thinking. Why she chose to risk her life and hide the spies, right? She believes in the God of Israel. She believes that, that this God, right, that, that the, her people are deserving of judgment and that God will judge her and her people for their sins. And, and again, right, this is not an innocent group of people minding their own business, about to get their land stolen from them. That's not what's going on here. Right? This is a wicked and rebellious people squatters in God's land, deserving God's justice. And so Rahab's only option then, in the midst of impending judgment, was to cry out to God for mercy. But not mercy to her gods, but mercy to the God of Israel, who she said is the God in heaven above and the earth below. He is sovereign over all. The men answered her and said, In verse 14, we will give our lives for yours if you don't report our mission. We will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. So Rahab here will experience mercy. Her life will be spared, but she's not to report their mission to the king of Jericho. In other words, she's not to play both sides. She can't be on God's side and be on the enemy's side. She she can't be on, on two teams, two opposing teams. She has to choose. So she says this in verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you. She said to them, hide there for three days until the return. Afterwards, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless... When we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brother, and all your family's family into your house. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if we report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear." Right, so uh, Rahab sends the spies on their way and the men tell her how she can escape judgment and experience mercy. She needs to right, identify her house, her room, by putting a scarlet cord from her window and then everyone who's in that house will receive mercy. Now, if you were in Israel during this time and if you were to hear this account, you, the first thing that probably would have come to mind would be the Passover, where the Passover was when God judged the king of Egypt. 
uh, for enslaving his people. And he told his people to mark their door frames uh, with the blood of a lamb. So that when the angel of death came, right, to take the life of every firstborn son in every family, the angel of death would pass over the house that had the blood on the, the blood of the lamb on the door frames. Their firstborn sons would be spared. So the Israelites would probably have thought about that, thinking about, wow, that's very similar. Putting a scarlet cord so that judgment would pass over Rahab and anyone that is in that house. And so really the story of, of Rahab, it's a foreshadow of the, of, of the gospel where God's judgment passed over us because we've been marked by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, through our faith in Him. God's judgment for our sins passed over us and fell on the firstborn son, His firstborn son, so that everyone that looks at Jesus and, and trusts in Him will receive His mercy. So the story of Rahab really, it's a rehearsal of a greater judgment, but it's also a rehearsal of a greater rescue of God. It's the story of the cross. Here's what Rahab teaches us. It's that we need to run to God with our sin, just like Rahab did. Run to God with our sin, not away from him. See, when the Israelites came into the land, there was really two responses. The people of Jericho melted away with fear because judgment was coming. Rahab, on the other hand, right, she knew that judgment was coming, and instead of fighting against God, instead of running away from God, she sought the mercy of God. And we need to do the same. Right, when we recognize we are sinners deserving God's judgment because we are broken His commandments. We don't fight God. We don't run away from God. We run to God, who is the only one that can give us mercy. Now, I think it's easy to look at Rahab and think to ourselves, man, I, I'm not a prostitute. I'm not an Amorite. I never sacrificed a child by throwing them in the fire. Uh, I'm not in the same category of Rahab. I don't deserve the judgment that Rahab deserved. But see, we, we fail to see, when we think like that, we, we fail to see our true nature. See, we are, we are blinded by sin in our own lives where we see ourselves as better and even in a different category than other people in our lives. Sin, conv sin convinces us to think that, you know, we're not on the same level of people like Rahab. Or, you know, we're in a different category than maybe that classmate in high school that just always partied and slept around. We're, we're not like them. Or we're always in that, we're not in the same category as that coworker that we know is stealing money and cheating the company that we're working at. Or we're not in the same category as that family member who has been abusive. We don't deserve the same judgment that they deserve. That somehow we are deserving of God's mercy because of the good that we think we've done in our lives. But that's what sin does. It makes us think we are exempt from God's judgment by comparing ourselves to people that we think we have a higher moral standing than. But the Bible teaches us that, that all of us have sinned and fall short of His glory. We may not offer children to the fire as a sacrifice 
We may not commit blatant sins that others can easily point out, but I'm sure we've all, right, have secretly looked down in pride on other people. We have all maybe experienced jealousy or envy over other people that have things that we just can't afford. Or maybe we've, right, we've all entertained greedy or lustful thoughts sometime in our lives that others don't see, but the Lord sees. We are all like Rahab, sinners deserving God's judgment. We all need God's forgiveness and his mercy. And that's why we need to turn to him to experience his mercy. And here's the thing, right? When we experience the forgiveness of God, when we truly understand how loved we are despite our sin, how forgiven we are despite the ways we've offended God, right? we're filled with so much gratitude that we want other people to experience that same mercy. Rahab had that same heart. Right? Rahab wasn't content with just being spared herself. She wanted her family to experience salvation too. That's the heart of God. God is not content with saving a select few people. God is not content by saving one nation. We see that in this story. right? It's not just about ethnic Israel. It isn't just about giving Israel land to live in. It's about saving people who are outside of God's covenant, who are outside of Israel, who are deserving of judgment just like Israel. Rahab is an example of God's heart to and for the nations. I think we also see that heart at the last book of the Bible in Revelation where we get a picture of heaven filled with people from every tribe on the earth. My question for us is, who, who's the Rahabs in our life? Who are the people that we think are far from God, who don't know the Lord, and yet God has put them in our lives, maybe so that they would taste God's mercy through, through our lives to them? God wants to include people into his family from every nation. And he loves to use us, his people, to share his love with the people who don't know him. Just like the two spies, right? They, they probably didn't realize what they were doing, that they would end up meeting Rahab, a prostitute, an Amorite, and she and her family would end up experiencing mercy and being spared. God loves to partner with his children, with us, to bring in more children, lost children, into his family. Right? That's why we as a church, uh, over, over the, uh, the past uh, months, we've been encouraging everyone, right, every single one of us to pray for and to share the love of Jesus with one person in our lives, one person who has yet to trust in Jesus. Our, our vision as a church is not to just remain a small group of people that want to keep God's love just among ourselves. That's not our vision. Our vision is to be a place of refuge, redemption, and resurgence for anyone who would come, that they would experience the mercy and the love of God. We're not inward focus, but we're outward focus because God's love is outward focus. He came to seek and to save the lost. God did not keep his love within himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, he wanted to share his love with others. And so that's our heart 
as well. And I, I think we can think to ourselves, gosh, you know, that's a big mission. That's a big call. Uh, and, you know, we're a small church. How can we really do that? Well, really, yeah, without, without, without the power and the help of God, we can't. Right? We can't lead other people to Jesus. It, it's impossible. But with God, right, he loves to do amazing things with a small group of people, things bigger than we can even imagine. Right? God took the tiny nation of Israel and planted them in the middle of greater nations to show off his generosity and his power through them. God freed them from the world power of Egypt, something that they could never have done themselves. God used just two spies who didn't seem to be very good spies in order to lead Rahab and her family to salvation, to experience mercy. God used Rahab, an Amorite prostitute, one woman who had a messy past, who had a messy life, who was still dealing with mess, and brought her into the tribe of Israel. She ends up marrying an Israelite, and from her descendants is King David. If you know the story, it doesn't end there. From Rahab's descendants comes King David, and, and centuries later comes King Jesus. So God would use Rahab to bring his son into the world. Something that the spies would have never even imagined. Something that Rahab wouldn't even have been on her radar. See, God loves to work through the small, through the messy, through the insignificant in the world. That's the next thing that we want to see. That's the next point. God loves to work through the insignificant, the small to do things even beyond their lifetimes, just like Rahab. She couldn't have even imagined that God would use her and then her descendants to bring King David and then to bring God himself into the world. God can do a work through us that even outlasts our lives, just like Rahab. Right, what if God, I was thinking this, right, what if God is already preparing and raising up future church planters, future church leaders, future missionaries, future men and women who will do great things for Jesus in our church. And you know where they are? They're right outside in our Sunday school class. Right now, they're only three years old. They're four years old. They're five. They're seven. They're 10. They're 11 years old. Future church planters and and leaders and and missionaries and just men and women that will do just amazing things for Jesus. God loves to work with what is considered small and insignificant. And so because of that, right, we should be encouraged, right, to pour out our lives, our time, our resources, our efforts into his kingdom, making disciples, sharing the love of Jesus with others, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant that work seems. I mean, Jesus did that with his own life. When Jesus came to earth, he wasn't born in the biggest city on the earth. He was born in a small, small village. He grew up in an obscure little village in Nazareth. He didn't own his own home. He didn't make make any money as as a preacher. He had a small group of disciples who followed him. He didn't travel the world, just live in a small plot of earth. 
He died a lonely death on a cross. And yet from his life that many would have considered insignificant and small compared to others throughout history, his death opened up the door for humanity to return to our Heavenly Father. And now he calls us right, to join him in this mission of calling others back into the family of God. Doesn't matter how big or how small a church is, right? He loves to work through just anyone who is willing. Maybe you heard that famous quote. I'm not too sure who said it, right? But we can never be too small to be used by God, just too big. Right? He loves to work through the humble, those who recognize, just like Rahab, that we're sinners deserving of judgment. But we find our mercy in God through Jesus and his death and resurrection from the dead. And that through him, right, we experience new life that he wants us to share with others. And we're going to celebrate that life that he has given us this morning through taking communion. And so I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, we're going to be taking communion together. Uh, if you don't have a communion cup, we have them right on our back table. You're welcome to get up now and, and, and grab a communion cup. But we celebrate the life of Jesus that may look small and insignificant to other people's eyes, but ended up being the very salvation that we need to bring us back to the Father. And so we, we thank him and we remember his sacrifice for us by taking communion. We remember his body that has been broken for us. That we are all like Rahab. We have all offended God and, and, and broke his commandments and deserve his judgment. We're under the same judgment of Jericho. Yet God in his mercy sent Jesus, right, to pay the punishment that we deserve. And so remember Jesus' body, the Lamb of God, that was broken for us on the cross. So let's go ahead and take the cracker together and thank the Lord for his sacrifice. Rahab has to put a scarlet cord outside of her window, marking, uh, marking it so that judgment would pass over her. For us, right, it is the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ that has forgiven us of all our sins so that God's judgment passed over us and landed on His Son. And so we thank the Lord for forgiving us for every sin that we've ever committed so that we are now declared righteous in His sight through faith in Him. So let's go ahead and drink of the juice together, thanking Him for His sacrifice. Another way we worship God and, and, and share the love of Christ is through the local church. And one way uh, that you can do that is through financial giving. And you can do that online or in the box in the back. Well, we're going to respond now to the grace of God, the same grace that Rahab experienced, we too experience. And we're going to respond to that through, through song, uh, through praising Him, through music. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to experience your mercy. That we, just like Rahab, have rebelled against you, have chosen to live our lives apart from your good rule, but yet in your mercy you sent us not two spies, but our Savior Jesus to be our sacrifice, our substitute, so that we could have life in Jesus. 
And so we pray, Lord, that just in, in gratitude we respond through song, through a life lived as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. And so thank you for your great love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand.